0: Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 5.9 How Church and State Colonized the World. And welcome back to Musings on History. This is the penultimate episode of the History of Christianity series. Last episode, I discussed the Protestant Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. In this episode, I will discuss how Christianity was used to justify and rationalize slavery, colonization, and imperialism. I will also discuss the ways that enslaved and colonized peoples maintain their indigenous beliefs through syncretization. Chapter 1, How Europe Used the World as a Dumping Ground for Political and Religious Rejects. So back in episode 5.8, I talked about how the dissenters, which were an umbrella group of Protestants in Elizabethan and Jacobean England, briefly held power during the reign of King Edward VI, who was deeply influenced by the Lutheran Thomas Cranmer, but they felt like the Elizabethan and Jacobean Anglicanism were too much like Roman Catholicism. These Puritans, as they were called, had been exiles in mainland Europe during the reign of Queen Mary and returned to England, having been influenced by the ideas of John Calvin. In Scotland, the preacher John Knox, a Calvinist acolyte, organized the Kirk of Scotland along Presbyterian and Calvinist lines. And although he had a good relationship with luminaries like Cranmer, he didn't want the reformed churches of Scotland and England to become one and the same, mostly because the anglican church acknowledged the king or queen of england to be the supreme head of their church and the kirk of scotland had no supreme head rather they had a general assembly for their part the englands and the anglicans in england didn't want their church ming- mingling with the kirk of scotland either so by the time that king charles i took the throne it was considered a moot point to everyone but him obviously The Puritans didn't like the changes that King James I made to the Reformed Church in England, especially his King James Bible. And so many of them left for Leiden in the Netherlands and then went on to the Virginia Colony in North America and also to the Massachusetts and Maine colonies. England and Scotland were a little late to the age of exploration in comparison to, you know, their continental counterparts and the colonization of the world as well. Uh, The Portuguese Empire was one of the longest-lived empires in world history, existing for almost six centuries. Their territorial conquest began with the capture of the city of Sueta in North Africa in 1415 and ended with the handover of the city of Macau to China in 1999. The empire reached its zenith in the early 16th century with bases in North and South America, Africa, and various regions throughout Asia and Oceania. The Portuguese, under Infante Dom Henry the Navigator, wanted to find an alternate route to India and see how far the Muslim kingdoms of North Africa extended past their fort at Bohador in present-day Western Sahara. They followed up the capture of Sueta by claiming the Atlantic Islands of Madeira in 1419 and the Azores in 1427. From 1497 to 1499, The explorer Vasco da Gama rounded the Cape of Good Hope in Southern Africa and became the first European to reach Asia by sea. This was crucially important for Europe because the Ottoman Empire controlled all the land routes and the more direct sea routes to the east until the early 19th century. As the Portuguese explored the coastlines of Africa, they left behind a series of padroids, which are stone crosses engraved with the Portuguese uh, coat of arms, that marked their claims and they would build forts and trading uh, posts there. From these bases, they engaged in the slave and gold trades. Portugal enjoyed a virtual monopoly on the African seaborne slave trade for well over a century, importing about 800 slaves annually. Most were brought to the Portuguese capital of Lisbon, interestingly enough, where it is estimated Black Africans came to constitute about 10% of the population of Portugal by 1500. So when you start talking about, uh, what's her name? Queen Charlotte, uh, the wife of King George, I'm going to say the third. And everybody talks about how she may or may not have had African ancestry. And in all the paintings of her, she does have like kind of dark skin and kinky hair and the nose. And, you know, she looks a little bit phenotypically African. Well, Queen Charlotte, her, she was Charlotte of Mecklenburg and a little bit further back down the line. Cause this is like the late 1700s, Queen Charlotte, but back in like the 1550s or so, there was a nobleman, um, the king's brother, in Portugal, who actually married an African princess from present-day Angola, and her family had like a trading house and everything in Lisbon, and so a lot of historians and ethnographers tend to believe that that's where Queen Charlotte gets her got her. African ancestry looks or whatever from that somewhat distant African ancestor. The ancestors are really funny about when and where they want to show up. Uh, But yeah, in Asia, the Portuguese were surprised to find Christian populations along the Malabar coast, but found that shared religion, even though it differed greatly from Portuguese Catholicism, made it easier for them to trade The Crown in Lisbon then sponsored missionary activity in India and missionaries and priests converted large numbers of people in all spheres of society, especially in the city of Goa. St. Francis Xavier pioneered the establishment of a seminary called St. Paul's College in Goa and it was the first Jesuit headquarters in Asia. Later in Macau, they built another St. Paul's College in 1594 and it is now known as the University of Macau or in Latin, College of Mater Dei. Because of state conflicts with the Jesuits, in 1762, the Marques de Pombal expelled the order from Macau. Missionaries of the Jesuit order spread throughout India, going as far north as the court of the great Mughal emperor, Jalaluddin Akbar, who invited the Jesuits to his court so that he could learn more about Christianity. There was even an inquisition in Goa, which was established in 1560, briefly suppressed from 1774 to 1778, and finally abolished in 1812. It was established to punish relapsed Muslims and Jews who had converted to Catholicism, as well as their descendants, but were suspected of practicing their ancestral religions in secret. Numerous Portuguese Converso Jews had come to Goa and worked as traders, Due to persecution during the Inquisition, most of them left Goa and migrated to Fort St. George, which later became Madras and then Chennai, and Cochin, where English and Dutch rule, respectively, were more tolerant. The Goan Inquisition also scrutinized Indian converts from Hinduism or Islam who were thought to have returned to their original faith. It prosecuted non-converts who broke prohibitions against the observance of Hindu or Muslim rights or interfered with Portuguese attempts to convert non-Christians to Catholicism. While uh, the ostensible goal was to preserve the Catholic faith, the Inquisition was used against Indian Catholics as an instrument of social control, as well as a method of confiscating victims' property and enriching the Inquisitor's. In Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella joined their kingdoms of Aragon and Castile, respectively, and began the Reconquista of the Iberian Peninsula in 1493, a year after they funded Christopher Columbus's first expeditions to find a western route to India that would not cross into Portuguese waters. The Catholic monarchs had passed the Alhambra Decree of 1492, which led to the mass conversion of Spain's Jews to Catholicism and the expulsion of those who refused to do so. But their blood statutes required any Spaniard who wanted to travel to the New World to provide written documentation of old Christian lineage. Some Jews did slip past this requirement, including Rodrigo de Triana and Luis de Torres, who were with Christopher Columbus on his first expeditions. The Crown of Castile and the Kingdom of Portugal also signed the Treaty of Tordesillas on June 7, 1494, Dividing all newly discovered lands outside Europe between the Portuguese Empire and the Spanish Empire along a, mer- a meridian 370 leagues west of the Cape Verde Islands off the coast, off the west coast, sorry, of Africa. That line of demarcation was about halfway between the Cape Verde Islands, which were uninhabited pri- prior to Portuguese settlement, and the islands entered by Christopher Columbus on his first voyage, which he claimed for Spain, calling them Sipango and Antillia. Cuba and Hispaniola, in this treaty. The lands to the east would belong to Portugal and the lands to the west to Castillo. The other side of the world was divided a few decades later by the Treaty of Zaragoza, signed on 22 April 1529, which specified the Antimeridian to the line of demarcation specified in the Treaty of Tordesillas. After the Reconquista, King Philip III, great Grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella expelled thousands of Jews in 1609, and throughout the 15th and 16th centuries, a number of converso families migrated to the Netherlands, France, and Italy, where they then joined expeditions to the Americas. By the late 16th century, fully functioning Jewish communities were founded in the Portuguese colony of Brazil, the Dutch colonies of Suriname and Curacao. Spanish Santo Domingo, which is present-day Dominican Republic, and in the English colonies of Jamaica and Barbados. There were also unorganized communities of Crypto-Jews in Spanish and Portuguese territories where the Inquisition was active, including in Colombia, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Mexico, and Peru. The first English settlements in North America, such as the Popham and Plymouth colonies and the colony and dominion of Virginia, were established in the early 15th century. In England, all land belonged to the crown, and it was the monarchs to divide at will, and all colonial properties were thus partitioned by royal charter into four types, proprietary, royal, joint stock, or covenant. Initially, the proprietary and joint stock uh, colonies were favored by the rulers of England as a way of rewarding their allies. King Charles II bestowed the colony of New Amsterdam, First explored by the Italian explorer uh, Giovanni de Ver, uh, Verrazzano sorry, in fifteen twenty four and then settled by the Dutch beginning in sixteen oh seven to his younger brother, the Duke of York, who renamed it New York. He also gave the English writer and religious thinker William Penn a royal charter for the lands that would eventually become Pennsylvania in sixteen eighty one. This Charles did to pay off the significant debt that he owed to William Penn's father, the politician, Sir William Penn, Sr. William Penn the Younger was a member of the dissenting Protestant group, the Society of Friends, or Quakers, as they later became known. And Penn was an early advocate of democracy and religious freedom, which made him and his fellow Quakers unpopular with other dissenters, with Catholics, and with mainstream Anglicans. As soon as Penn received his charter, he set sail for his new lands, which included the present-day state of Delaware. In 1682, Penn sailed up the Delaware Bay and the Delaware River, past earlier Dutch and Swedish settlements, and soon the other Protestants in the area asked him to be their leader, so he formed the Pennsylvania General Assembly. Even with such an influential and wealthy father, William Penn had been imprisoned for his dissenting beliefs in 1666, And many other dissenters flocked to his colony and the city that he created, Philadelphia. The Catholics also left England to found proprietary colonies in North America, like the Royal Province of Maryland, founded by Cecil uh, Calvert, 2nd Baron Baltimore in 1632. It was, of course, named for Queen Mary I, who had attempted in vain to re-Catholicize England and, through her rough tactics, fostered a deep anti-Catholic sentiment in England that would last for hundreds of years. Maryland, like Pennsylvania, was intended to be a colony of religious toleration, but religious strife amongst the Anglicans, Puritans, Catholics, and Quakers was common in the early years, and the Puritans briefly seized control of the province of Maryland. In 1689, the year after the Glorious Revolution in England, John Cood led a rebellion that removed Lord Baltimore from power in Maryland. But power was restored to the Baltimore family in 1715 when Charles Calvert, fifth Baron Baltimore, insisted in public that he was a Protestant. He wasn't. The colony of Virginia was the oldest and the first English colony in North America, beginning in Jamestown in 1607, and it was one of the wealthier ones. Although the first English settlers were the Puritans, the colony was nicknamed the Old Dominion by Charles II because it became a haven for Catholics and royalists during the Protectorate and Commonwealth eras after the English Civil War. So Virginia has always kind of been like split into two parts in the northern, yeah, let's say north eastern part of the state. That's where the Puritans were. And then when you go further south to the grand plantations and all that stuff, that's where it becomes the Old Dominion where a lot of the Catholics and a lot of like the planter class was located. And that affects politics in Virginia, honestly, to this day. The Old Dominion exiles mainly settled in central Virginia around the James River and spread out over time, like I said, into these grand estates, laying claim to areas that eventually became the modern states of West Virginia, Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, and portions of Ohio and western Pennsylvania. In the Jacobite Rebellion of 1715, the mostly Catholic Scottish supporters of the young pretender James Edward Stuart tried to retake the thrones of England, Scotland, and Ireland for the exiled Catholic Stuarts. They surrendered at the Battle of Preston on 14 November 1715, and the Crown sought to break the power of the Scottish clans, especially in the Highlands. Clans were the major social unit of the Highlands, and the clan chief and his relatives gave protection and land to the clansmen, who would in turn work the land and pay their rents in the form of agricultural products. When the clan chief called his men to arms, they responded. And intermarriage strengthened the bonds between Highlander clans, making them a tight unit in an area where law and order were not traditionally administered through the crown. During a period known as the Highland Clearances, the English crown eliminated the threat to their authority that they felt that the clans posed to them by confiscating the lands of the clan chiefs who had participated in the Jacobite rebellions and then evicting most of the tenants. After the Jacobite uprising of 1715, the English Parliament passed the Disarming Act of 1715, which outlawed anyone in certain parts of Scotland from having in his or their custody use or bear broadsword, poniard, winger, or dirk, side pistol, gun, or other warlike weapon unless authorized. The English were moderately successful at confiscating weapons. So when the Jacobites rose again in 1745, uh, this time to put Jamie's eldest son, Bonnie Prince Charlie, on the throne, they were defeated at the Battle of Culloden, mostly because of their outdated arms. After Culloden, Parliament passed the Act of Proscription in 1746, which restated the earlier Disarming Act, but this time with even more severe punishments that were rigorously enforced this time. Punishment started with fines that the judges and magistrates knew that the Highland Scots couldn't pay, having lived under a relative barter system for so long. And then, when they couldn't pay the fines, they were sent to jail until they were able to pay, which, like, how are you going to be able to pay while you're in jail, right? Exactly. There was also forced conscription into the Royal Navy for late payment And repeat offenders were liable to be transported to any of his majesty's plantations beyond the seas there to remain for the space of seven years, which was called indentured servitude. Thus, a large number of Jacobites ended up on uh, tobacco plantations in the province of Carolina, which is present day North Carolina. And I think they have like Scottish heritage festivals in Central Uh, uh, North Carolina, like to this day, transportation became a popular means of getting rid of religious and political rejects in England in the 15th and 16th centuries, as well as a means of emptying the jails, which is how the colony of Georgia was founded on 9 June, 1732 by the English politician, James Oglethorpe. Essentially, The reject makeup of the original 13 colonies was as follows. The New England colonies were settled by Puritans who either left during the reign of King James I or after the fall of the Commonwealth and restoration of the monarchy under Charles II. The Middle Atlantic colonies were settled by Catholic rejects who either left when Elizabeth I ascended to the throne or left after the Glorious Revolution. The Southern colonies were either settled to empty out debtors' prisons in England and Scotland and in Ireland as well, Or they provided a haven for Jacobites and other Catholics who had to flee the British Isles after their failed rebellions. The Gaelic-Irish were also affected by the Disarming Act and the Act of Prescription, but the penal laws were the most damaging for them. These included the Education Act of 1695, which prohibited Catholics from sending their children to be educated abroad. The Banishment Act of 1697, which banished all ordinaries and regular clergy of the Roman Catholic Church from Ireland. The Registration Act of 1704, which required all Roman Catholic priests to register at their local mag- magistrates' office, pay 250 pound bonds to ensure good behavior, and to stay in the county where they registered, the Popery Act of 1704 and 1709, and the Disenfranchising Act of 1728, which prohibited all Roman Catholics from voting. Most of the penal codes were removed around 1778 to 1793 when the Whig Party took over the English Parliament. But by then, thousands of Irish Catholics had either been transported or voluntarily left England for the colonies, chiefly to the British colonies in the Caribbean, like Jamaica and Barbados, where they were day laborers, sailors, and plantation overseers. So the reason why like the majority of white people in the Caribbean are Irish and then you have like a few of the, uh, what do you call them, the Polish in Haiti is because for whatever reason, the Irish were the only Europeans who didn't like die in mass when they got to the, the, the Caribbean, like the rest of them, the Dutch, the Germans, the English, the French, the Spanish, if too many of them started coming to the Caribbean, they would just like start dying off en masse. The Irish were like, wow, it's hot. I have a sunburn. And they just like kept it moving. In France, the Protestant Huguenots had sought refuge from persecution in Switzerland and the Netherlands. They, yeah, they sought refuge from persecution in Switzerland and the Netherlands. I didn't like the way that sounded. And they attempted to settle colonies in Portuguese, Brazil, and Spanish Florida which were obviously unsuccessful because the Portuguese and the Spanish were also fervently Catholic. I don't know why, but I don't have a lot of sympathy for the Huguenots. For obvious reasons. They're French still. In 1624, a group of Huguenots led by Jesse de Forest settled in Dutch and English colonies in North America, including Charleston, South Carolina, New Netherland, which is present-day New Jersey, and parts of New York. New Rochelle was a French Huguenot settlement, as was New Paltz. The Huguenots were understandably bitter about their persecution in France. So when they arrived in Dutch or English speaking communities, they tended to shed the French language and adopted Dutch or English, and they intermarried quickly and often. And honestly, I feel like that's probably the best thing that you can do when you find out that you have French blood. You have to just breed it out. Chapter 2, The Treaty of Tordesillas and the Transatlantic Slave Trade. On his way back from the Caribbean, while sailing under the crown of Castile, Christopher Columbus and his crew stopped at Lisbon, Portugal, where he requested another meeting with King John II to prove to him that there were more islands to the southwest of the Canary Islands. Why he did this, I still do not understand, but I'm guessing it was pride since the Portuguese had laughed at him when he presented his case to them for funding. At any rate, they were right to laugh at Columbus because until Magellan's discovery of the strait that now bears his name and the building of the Panama Canal, there was no actual westward sea path to India. Besides, da Gama had already rounded the Cape of Good Hope and under the treaties of Tordesillas and Zaragoza, the Portuguese had established trading camps along the West African coast and in Southeast Asia, so they didn't really need uh, Columbus's westward route to get anything done. And their first trading settlement, as I mentioned earlier, was in the Cape Verde Islands. The Cape Verde Archipelago was uninhabited until the 15th century when Portuguese explorers discovered and colonized the islands, establishing the first European colony in the tropics. Due to its location off the coast of Senegal, the island chain quickly became a hub for the transportation of slaves and the importation of finished goods from Europe. Cape Verde was thus economically prosperous during the 16th and 17th centuries, attracting merchants and privateers and pirates and all other such flotsam and jetsam. Now discovering the Cape Verde islands, I feel like the people who lived like where they could see those islands already knew that they were there. And for whatever reason, they just decided not to live there. So I don't know about like discovering them, but whatever. The Portuguese men who ran the slave trade on Cape Verde would take African women from the Senegambia and Guinea uh, as common law wives and have children with them, resulting in the now mostly mixed race Creole population. Other African slaves were brought to the islands to work at the ports and in various other capacities. In 1553, the first mission was established by the Jesuits in the city uh, in the settlement of Praia, now the capital of Cape Verde. And today, 85 percent of Cape Verdeans are Roman Catholic. Cape Verde was one of the many routes on the triangular trade route known as, now known as the transatlantic slave trade. The slave trade involved the transportation of various enslaved African peoples to the Americas where they labored and produced sugarcane, rice, flax, tobacco, indigo, cotton, and other commodities that were then sent to European countries to be turned into finished goods. And then those finished goods were sent back to the colonies to be bought by the Europeans. That were living there. Those finished goods, like I said, were either sold in Europe or abroad in the colonies that the, you know, that the Europeans had established. And it resulted in a system whereby the colonized were both dependent on slave labor to produce and dependent on the mother country for those finished commodities. As time progressed and more Europeans settled in those overseas colonies, they brought their religions with them and subsequently forced their slaves and the indigenous peoples to adhere to their religions as well. Almost all the European countries, save maybe the central and eastern ones, participated in and materially benefited from slavery and colonization in the Americas and in Africa, as did the various Protestant churches and the Roman Catholic Church. Slavery in the Iberian Peninsula went back to the Roman Empire, and after the Visigoths were converted to Christianity, the practice fell away, as Latin Christians did not enslave one another. When the Muslims invaded Spain and set up the southern kingdoms and caliphates and emirates of al Andalus, Cordoba, Almohad, and Granada, they frequently made war with the northern Christian kingdoms of Castile, Aragon, Navarre, Mallorca, Galicia, Biscay, and León. Both the Christians and the Muslims took prisoners of war and made them slaves. But while the Muslims did not allow the enslavement of believers, at least from the Abbasid caliphate onward, the Christians allow the enslavement of converted Muslims who they refer to as moriscos under the justification that those who convert to uh, Christianity need to be guided in it afterwards lest they turn astray. There's been much recent debate about the Spanish and Portuguese costa system and to what end this system spurred the development of the racial codes and hierarchies of the new world. Historians and anthropologists such as Pilar Gonzalbo, a Spanish-Mexican academic whose work focuses on the history of New Spain, which is present-day Mexico, and Joanne Rappaport, professor of Latin American literature and cultural studies at Georgetown University and author of The Disappearing Mestizo, Configuring Difference in the Colonial Andes, discard the idea of the existence of a caste system or a caste society in colonial Latin America that is understood as a social organization based on race and supported by coercive power. Dr. Rappaport rejects the caste system as an interpretive framework for that time, finding the association between caste and race illegitimate. Now, I don't have a PhD. I'm not a critical race scholar, nor have I spent 20 plus years examining the social relations between races in Latin America. But one thing that I am, that Dr. Rappaport and Dr. Gonzalbo notably are not, is black. And I have been black for 35 years and counting. Thank you. I'm very proud of that. And I've been black in the Caribbean. I've been black in Europe. I've been black in Latin America, Africa, South America, you name it. I've touched every continent except for Antarctica and I was black every time I did that you get it right I'm black and I know how to spot the vestiges of a racial hierarchy when I see one now to New Spain's credit slavery didn't really take off in New Spain which again is present-day Mexico outside of like the state of Veracruz on the Atlantic coast because of the topography and stuff but Most of colonial Latin America was dependent on slavery economically, and after the passage of the new laws in 1542, those slaves were exclusively African. The Asiento de Negros was a monopoly contract between the Spanish crown and various merchants for the right to provide African slaves to colonies in the Spanish Americas. The Spanish relied on African slave labor to make their American colonial project possible, But they didn't have footholds in West Africa so that they could kidnap and transport Africans themselves. The Portuguese had a lock on that for a very long time. Thus, the Spanish were reliant on the Portuguese slave traders for all of their slave needs. The contract was usually obtained by foreign merchant banks who cooperated with local or foreign traders who specialized in shipping slaves from the West African coast to Spanish America. Different organizations and individuals would bid for the right to hold the asiento as I will explain later in the episode. By the early 16th century, the indigenous populations of Spanish America had been reduced drastically by disease and war. And the colonists needed to, the Spanish colonists rather needed to replace that labor force. The original impetus of the asiento was to relieve the indigenous inhabitants of the Spanish colonies from the labor demands of the colonists. Initially, Spain only gave individual asientos to Portuguese merchants to bring slaves to South America, but after the Treaty of Munster, which ended the Thirty Years' War that I talked about last episode, Dutch merchants also became involved in the Asiento de Negros. In 1713, the British were awarded the right to the Asiento in the Treaty of Utrecht, which ended the War of the Spanish Succession. And the British passed its rights to the South Sea Company, which was a British joint stock company founded in January 1711 for the sole purpose of supplying African slaves to the islands in the South Pacific and South America. The British Asiento ended with the 1750 Treaty of Madrid between Great Britain and Spain. Now, at this point, I know you're wondering, Dana, how does all of this relate to the existence of a racial caste system in Spanish America? Well... Like most awful things of Spanish origin, the Casta system can be traced back to Ferdinand and Isabella, those most Catholic of monarchs. After forcing the conversion of Jews and Muslims of uh the Jews and Muslims of Spain to Catholicism, the old Christians were then concerned that if these conversos and moriscos were allowed to just, you know, now live freely in society because they were Christian, their descendants might actually mingle their descendants the the old christians descendants might actually mingle their pure spanish catholic blood with the impure blood of the conversos and moriscos thus the concept of limpieza de sangre or blood purity became popular and the first statute of blood of purity of blood appeared in toledo spain in 1449 when a mob of old christians rioted in the jewish quarter of the city they were also uh what 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 are they calling now? They had economic anxiety. So if you chose to stay Muslim, you had to get out of Spain. If you chose to stay Jewish, you had to do it very very quietly or get out of Spain. But if you chose to live outwardly as a Catholic, then they were holding that against you still because your blood's not pure and now you get to be a co- your competition for us economically because the muslims and the jews in you know those formerly muslim held territories in spain they were very prosperous so when the reconquista happened the christian spanish were like well we can't compete with that so yeah the result of uh the fir- the first Olympia de sangre laws were a ban on conversos and their descendants from most official positions. In 1496, Pope Alexander VI approved a blood purity statute for the Order of St. Jerome. This form of economic stratification meant that old Christian commoners could assert a right to honor, even if they weren't in the nobility, and social mobility within the empire required proof of one's blood purity. The religious and military orders, guilds, and other organizations incorporated clauses in their bylaws demanding proof of cleanliness of blood, and new Christian families had to either accept this new status quo or bribe and falsify documents attesting generations of Christian ancestry. Along with these discriminatory laws came the pseudo-intellectualism to rationalize it. The Jesuit priest and writer Manuel Laramendi argued that because the Muslims had never invaded Basque country in northernmost Spain, the Basque people had a claim to universal hidoguia, which is the lowest form of nobility in the Spanish caste system. All monarchies, by their very nature, are reinforced by caste systems. So the idea that colonial Spanish America would have a caste system that mirrored the mother country is not all that shocking. Caste, by the way, is defined as a form of social stratification characterized by endogamy, hereditary transmission of a lifestyle, which includes an occupation, ritual status in a hierarchy, and customary social interaction and exclusion based on cultural notions of purity and pollution. So, how... How does Latin America not have a racial caste system again? Like, how? The, the idea of mestiz- mestizaje has got y'all all fucked up in the head. Clearly, there was a racial caste system in Latin America. And clearly, it came from the caste system in Spain. Like, it's a straight fucking line. The presumed universal hidalguia of Basque helped many of them to positions of power in, admi- in, uh, in administration. And this idea was reinforced by the fact that, as a result of the Reconquista, a large number of Spanish noble lineages were already of Basque origin. So, you know, that's convenient. The discriminatory effects of Limpiaza de Sangre were felt well into the 19th century. For example, por ejemplo, on eight March eighteen o four, King Ferdinand the Seventh passed a, degree, a decree that no knight of the military orders could wed without having a council vouch for the limpieza de sangre of his spouse, which fits into the endogamy qualification of a caste system. In Spanish America, the caste system initially mirrored the caste system in Spain, leading to a classification system that, while not as rigid, still largely determined one's social and economic trajectory. At the top of this caste system were the peninsulares, Spaniards in the Americas who were born in Spain and usually had that impeccably pure lineage. They were the ruling class in Spanish America. Adjacent to them were the criollos, Spaniards of similar blood purity who were born in the Americas. Then there were the indigenous who lived on missions or in semi-autonomous communities and were exempted from taxes thanks to the new laws. Although there were certain autonomies granted to the indigenous, they were still under the jurisdiction of the Spanish, and many of them intermarried with the Spanish to improve the educational and economic opportunities of their descendants. These were the mestizos of mixed indigenous and Spanish heritage. A smaller class were those who were mixed African indigenous, the Zambos. Zombo was used interchangeably with maroon in some cases, such as the Mosquito Zambos, descendants of a group of African slaves who led a slave ship revolt in 1640. They wrecked the ship at Cape Gracias a Dios on the border between Honduras and Nicaragua, and they escaped into the mountainous interior where they united with the indigenous Mosquito people. By the early 18th century, Afro-Mosquito people dominated the interior and they were known for their slave raids that captured slaves for sale back to the Europeans, much like the Maroons of Jamaica did. They allied themselves with the English-speaking settlers and helped them found the colony of British Honduras, which is now present-day Belize. Mixed European and African people were called mulattoes and the Africans were the Negroes and made up the enslaved class. Now, there was Little to no chance that you were a negro, no zombo, no 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 mestizo, no nothing. Just African, and you were free in the Spanish Americas. So caste is inescapable, and when your caste is tied to, and when caste is, you know, your social status within the society, it's inescapable. You're born into it, and in the Americas your race is what you were born, what is what you're born into. And it also is the caste that you're born in. What the hell did, are these two esteemed professors even talking about? Like, I, re- I feel like I shouldn't even have to go through all of this. It's kind of insulting me to me that people are seriously arguing against a racial caste system existing in Latin America. Like y'all want to do this rainbow coalition thing with Latin America so bad where everybody is, you know, half Spanish with a with a indigenous grandma and a black great grandpa and it's just bullshit. It's bullshit. Anyway though, the French colonies had a similar hierarchy that gave rise to terms like octoroons, which is a person who is one eighth black by descent, and quadroons which is a person with one-quarter African and three-quarters European ancestry. In the Portuguese, French, Spanish, and English colonies, as well as in the Dutch and others, the colonial authorities coded your race by hypodescent, which is the practice within a society of assigning children of mixed race unions to the ethnic group which the dominant group perceives as being subordinate. The racial designations refer specifically to the number of Full-blooded African ancestors or equivalent, emphasizing the quantitative least. As other non-European ethnicities came into the Americas, terms like Maribu, which is a person of mixed African, European, indigenous, and Asian heritage, well, at least it is in some places. In Louisiana, a Maribu is somebody that has like a certain amount of European and african ancestry but they tend to have a darker complexion and a looser curl of hair i think it's the same in haiti but in other uh french and spanish caribbean colon former colonies a maribou is a person that has basically all of them african european indigenous and asian And then there's Douglas, which is a person of mixed African and East Indian heritage. So that also came into play. Now, not to belabor the point, but in the colonies and indeed in the societies of 14th to 17th century Europe in general, the church was the official record keeper for most communities. The colonial authorities were chiefly concerned with getting their tax money, irrespective of a person's racial background. So the church, be it Catholic or Protestant, was there when a person drew their first breath to record the date and prepare the baby for baptism, even for slaves, and they were usually there when a person drew their last breath to give them their last rites and organize their funeral and burial on church grounds. All weddings were performed by priests, and they were bound by law to provide the appropriate documentation to the colonial authorities before they could perform the marriage sacraments. Thus, the church in Spanish America helped perpetuate the racial caste system by documenting and assigning everyone's racial classification at the time of their birth or conversion. In France, the twilight of absolute monarchy coincided with the growth of the French metropole and their overseas slave empire. New France was the colonized territories of North America that consisted of five colonies at its peak in 1712. Canada, the most developed colony, was divided into the districts of Quebec Troy Rivières and Montreal, Hudson's Bay, Acadie in the northeast, Plaisance on the island of Newfoundland, and La Louisiane. French Louisiana originally covered an expansive territory that included most of the drainage basin of the Mississippi River and stretched from the Great Lakes to the Gulf of Mexico and from the Appalachian Mountains to the Rocky Mountains. La Louisiane was divided into two regions, now known as Upper Louisiana. La Haute-Louisiane, which began north of the Arkansas River, and lower Louisiana, La Basse-Louisiane, or Basseterre, The French possessions of North America were all under the authority of a single Catholic diocese, whose seat was in Quebec. The archbishop, so it was an archdiocese. The archbishop was named by and paid by the king, was the spiritual head of all New France. The great distance between this archdiocese and the people of Basseterre, La Louisiane, led to less religious fervor in the territory, but Catholicism did persist, as I can personally attest. The Jesuits were sent to La Louisiane to convert the native Chitimaca Cushada. Choctaw, Tunica-Biloxi, Adaicado, Muskogee, Apache, Cherokee, and Huma tribes that lived and traded along the territory's main rivers, the Missouri and the Mississippi. The Ursulines, an enclosed religious order of consecrated nuns, were operating a hospital in New Orleans by 1720. And the Ursulines also opened the Ursuline Academy in New Orleans in 1727 the first all-girls Catholic school in the country that eventually would become part of the United States and the first to hold classes for female African-American slaves, free women of color, and Native Americans. In 1867, the Sisters of the Holy Family opened St. Mary's Academy in New Orleans under the direction of Mother Henriette Diaz de Lille, a free Creole woman of color. Whoop, whoop, St. Mary. Both schools taught enslaved children when such education was prohibited by law and by doing so established a close bond between the marginalized African-American community in New Orleans and the Catholic church. The first black Catholic religious order in the United States, by the way, is the Oblate sisters of Providence founded by a Cuban born Haitian woman named mother Mary Lang in 1828 in Baltimore, Maryland. And her school also called the Oblate sisters of Providence also provided education to free and enslaved black girls. Chapter three, the role of the missionary. Usually when a slave trading ship or an exploratory vessel sailed out of a European port to the Americas or Africa, a missionary preacher was on board. The Jesuits, whose mission is to spread the Roman Catholic faith all over the world and instruct the world in the Catholic doctrine, were the first religious order to establish a mission in Asia in 1540 at Nagasaki. It closed in 1547, but undaunted, the Jesuits and the Augustinians continued to proselytize throughout Asia, following Spanish and Portuguese traders wherever they went. They had the most success in the Philippines, and today, 86% of Filipinos identify as Catholic, making the Philippines the only Christian country in Asia. European explorers would usually present themselves as traders and then the missionaries who accompanied them would make themselves useful as like healers and dispute negotiators. They'd offer to educate the children of the chieftains and kings that they encountered and set up religious schools to educate all the children in an area as well. Certain priests such as Father Marquette, a French Jesuit active in Quebec in the 17th century, took part in exploratory missions, mapping the new territories and often making the first contact with indigenous people. The Jesuits translated collections of prayers into numerous Amerindian languages in order to convert Native Americans. They also looked for raise, ways to relate Indian practices to, sorry, Native American practices, my bad, sorry, my bad, to Christian worship and help show these Natives how their practices in Christianity were related. A syncretic religion developed am, amongst many new Christians, but for the first hundred years or so, Sincere and permanent conversions were pretty limited in number. Many who received missionary instruction tended to assimilate the Holy Trinity into their belief of spirits or rejected the concept outright. Missionaries found their greatest success in conversion with indigenous women and children who they usually worked alongside most closely, farming and tending to the medical needs of the communities that they encountered. The missionaries eventually set up hospitals and just generally ingratiated themselves into the local indigenous communities as their colonizing counterparts were setting up trading posts and fortresses to solidify their hold on the land. Once European business interests arrived, the missionaries served them as they would have in Europe, and the number of schools available to the converted indigenous people began to dwindle. When converted indigenous peoples complained that they were being exploited, the missionaries would, you know, assuage them, telling them that it was God's will that they served their European overlords and that it was part of God's plan to civilize them. One notable exception were the Jesuits of Latin America. As Spanish and Portuguese colonization of South America ramped up, the Jesuits, seeking to protect the Amerindians from slavery established free city-states called reductions and purchased silver mines in Peru and Argentina where their native employees were treated more humanely. Jesuits such as Antonio Ruiz de Montoya, who founded the Peruvian reductions of Guayra, and Manuel de Nobrega and José de Ancheta, who founded the cities of Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, respectively, advocated for humane treatment of indigenous peoples and were very influential in... The pacification, religious conversion, and education of many Amerindian nations. They also built schools and hospitals and created a writing system for the local languages of Brazil. Jose de Ancheta and Manuel de Nobrega were the first Jesuits that Ignacio de Loyola had sent to the Americas. In 1759, the suppression of the Jesuits began as Jesuit orders were expelled from the Portuguese Empire in 1759, France in 1764, The two Sicilies, Malta, Parma, and the Spanish Empire in 1767, and Austrian-Hungary in 1782. In the Portuguese Empire, the quarrel with the Jesuits began over an exchange of Portugal's South American colonial territory with Spain. In a secret treaty in 1750, Portugal relinquished the contested Colonial de Sacramento to Spain in exchange for the seven reductions of Paraguay, the autonomous Jesuit missions that had been nominal Spanish colonial territory. The native Guarani who lived in the mission territories were ordered to quit their country and settle across the Uruguay River. The Guarani rose in arms against the transfer and the Jesuits supported them in the Guarani War with smuggled arms and medical aid. Although the war ended disastrously for the Guarani, many of the Jesuits who had fought by their side were Criollos born in the Americas. And the harsh treatment of the Jesuits in this aftermath as well as the empire's seeming disregard for colonial property rights, angered many in the Spanish Americas of all races and socioeconomic classes, and the Guarani War is considered a precursor to the wars of liberation in colonial Spanish America. In Portugal, a battle escalated with inflammatory pamphlets denouncing or defending the Jesuits, who for over a century had protected the Guarani from enslavement through a network of reductions, as depicted in the mission. All of these efforts by Jesuits and other missionaries, however, couldn't stop the effects of the Columbian Exchange, which was the widespread transfer of plants, animals, culture, human populations, technology, diseases, and ideas between the Americas, Europe, and Africa in the 15th and 16th centuries. Prior to the Columbian Exchange, diseases such as smallpox were substantially more numerous in the Old World than in the New. Centuries of interaction between Europe and the Near East and Eurasia resulted in many diseases migrating west across Eurasia with animals or people, or brought to traders, brought by traders from Asia. This was how the Black Death spread in the 1300s, beginning with Genoese sailors who had recently come back from Constantinople, and the Byzantines had gotten the bubonic plague from their trading with the Mongols and the Chinese. While Europeans and Asians were severely affected by these Eurasian diseases, their endemic status in those continents over the centuries resulted in many people gaining some immunity. In the Americas, the native populations had no exposure to these Eurasian diseases, and diseases like measles and small parks are believed to have caused the largest death tolls amongst the Amerindians, surpassing any wars and far exceeding the comparative loss of life in Europe due to the Black Death. So they say that like 70, they say like uh, what? Europe lost like 10 to 15% of its population through uh, the 1300, from the 1300s to the early 1600s, which was when the Black Death was like most virulent. But it's estimated that upwards of 80 to 95% of the Native American population died in the smallpox epidemics within the first 100 to 150 years following Columbus's first voyage. So in half the time that it took for Europe to lose roughly 10 to 15% of its population from one disease, in Central and South America and the Caribbean lost upwards of 95% of its indigenous population. And half the time, that's insane to think about, the the depopulation. Wow. This meant that a new stable base of free labor was needed if these European overseas colonies were to survive. Aside from the Irish, who, like I said, interestingly enough, they fared much better than their other European counterparts in these tropical areas, Europeans' life expectancies were pretty short in the tropics, so they couldn't just, like, use the Irish, I suppose. I now have a special hatred for the Spanish-Dominican friar, Bartolome de las Casas. And he's not a Dominican, like, from the Dominican Republic. He's a Dominican, like, the Dominican order. But, uh, yeah, Bartolome de las Casas, the so-called protector of the Indians because of a letter that he wrote to the newly crowned king of Spain, Carlos I, a.k.a. Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. This letter is called Memorial de Remedios para las Indias. And in this letter, he begged Charles to end the brutal encomienda system that was enslaving and killing off the indigenous population of the Spanish Americas. In their stead, he suggested to the king that the Spaniards, and indeed all Catholic nations, capture and enslave the Africans because of their resistance to malaria and familiarity with the tropical climates. Las Casas believed that slavery could be justified if it was a result of just war, a doctrine whose purpose is to ensure that war is morally justifiable through a series of criteria, all of which must be met for a war to be considered just. The criteria are split into two groups, the right to go to war, which is just ad bellum, and the right to conduct uh, right conduct in war, which is just in bello. The first concerns the morality of going to war, and the second, the moral conduct within the war. St. Augustine of Hippo, the third century theologian and philosopher, was one of the major advocates of just war theory, and it had been part of Catholic doctrine since then. According to the Jamaican novelist, dramatist, critic, philosopher, and essayist Sylvia Winter, Las Casas' 1516 memorial was the direct cause of Emperor Charles V granting permission in 1518 to transport transport the first 4,000 African slaves to Jamaica, which at that time was a Spanish colonial possession. Las Casas later apologized for suggesting African slavery in place of indigenous slavery in his history of the Indies writing. I soon repented and judged myself guilty of ignorance. I came to realize that black slavery was just as unjust as Indian slavery. No shit. And I was not sure that my ignorance and good faith would secure me in the eyes of God. Baby, if God has eyes, you are in hell. What I want to know is what the hell did he think was going to happen? You are basically saying, no, 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 don't enslave these people, enslave these people, because, you know, they can take it. What the hell does that have to do with the way that we would have been treated, though? Not a goddamn thing. If the encomenderos were mistreating the Amerindians, did you think supplying them with an even darker labor force of slaves who were resistant to tropical diseases was going to make them treat, us better? In any case, the enslavement of Africans, it began before Las Casas wrote that stupid letter, and History of the Indies didn't stop it. So, personally, apology not accepted, and again, burn in hell, Bartolome de Las Casas. Chapter 4 New World Religious Syncretization. Back in episode 5.1, I briefly talked about syncretization, which is the blending of two or more religious beliefs into a new system or the incorporation of beliefs from unrelated traditions into a religious tradition. This can occur in areas where multiple religious traditions exist in proximity to one another and actively function in the overall culture, or it can occur when a culture is conquered and the conquerors bring their religious beliefs with them, but they do not succeed in entirely eradicating the old beliefs or especially the old practices. The example I gave in episode 5.1 was synchronization through trade, where a Phoenician trader who worships the Canaanite god of the sea, Yam, might stop by the temple of the Ugaritic sea god, Balusapani. These are real names, by the way. While in the port city of Ugarit in the Hittite kingdom, and decide to just pray to him since they're both sea gods, right? Over time, the worship of Yam and Balusapani might begin to look kind of similar, or sailors from Phoenicia might start to develop a slightly different worship of yam than their fellow Phoenicians, one that closely resembles the worship of Balusapani in Ugarit. The spread of Christianity in the 14th to 19th centuries by Europeans coincided with European colonization of the Americas, Africa, Asia, and Oceania. And so the syncretization of Christianity and indigenous belief systems would be emblematic of the second kind of syncretization. As far back as the fourth century AD, when Christianity was at long last sanctioned by the Roman state, proselytization became a chief goal of the early church, not only to save souls, but also to encourage uniformity and conformity within the Roman Empire. Christianity as a religion was more austere and pious than the polytheistic faith that it was competing with back then. And it lacked uh, a certain cultural resonance and attachment to heritage once it, it left the Lev- Levant. So early Christian missionaries had to be creative in order to, you know, sell this new religion. People do love their holidays, you know, and the Christian faith didn't have that many holidays that weren't also tied to the Jewish faith. For instance, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection happened when he went to Jerusalem for Pesach or Passover. Jesus being a Jew and all. Therefore, the annual remembrance of Jesus' resurrection coincides with Passover. For Levantine Jews, this is this is well and fine. They could celebrate Jesus' resurrection while their families celebrated Pesach, and this was common in the first and second centuries before Judaism and Christianity began their you know great sundering. And it's probably common now in you know interfaith families. Outside of the Levant, however, nobody celebrated Pesach, Pesach for centuries, so the Christians needed to find a springtime holiday to connect Jesus to, and they found it in the celebration of the Germanic goddess of spring, Eostre, also sometimes called Ostara. The Venerable Bede, an 8th century English Benedictine monk at the Monastery of St. Peter in the kingdom of Northumbria of the Angles, wrote in his book, The Reckoning of Time, that during, oh Lord, how am I going to say this? Eostaminop? Yeah, okay. The equivalent of April in the Germanic calendar. The pagan Anglo-Saxons had held feasts in Yostri's honor, but that this tradition had died out by his time, replaced by the Christian Paschal month, a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Bede is the only author to attest to the synchronization of Yastri and Jesus's uh, resurrection, but uh, it's not that much of a stretch to me. Bede lived in one of the four kingdoms that came out of the Heptarchy, which are the seven Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of England. So he was an Anglo-Saxon. Those seven kingdoms, I mean, it literally is, yeah, Northumbria of the Angles. So he was an Angle. Those seven kingdoms consolidated into four by the 8th century, which were Northumbria, Wessex, East Anglia, and Mercia. And the Christianization of Britain had only begun 400 years prior in the 4th century. So it's not far-fetched to believe that the Anglo-Saxons who invaded and eventually settled in Britannia in the 5th century, a hundred years after the initial Christianization campaign was begun by the Romans, it's not that far-fetched that they would have brought their pagan customs to Britain and assimilated them with the indigenous and Roman Christian Britain traditions. The Festival of Iostre was one that celebrated her fecundity and the regeneration that spring brings. Many ancient cultures associated spring with regeneration and bounty as it was the time in the agricultural season when crops were planted and some to be harvested in summer and others right before winter started. It was extremely important that the soil was fertile, obviously, so ritual sacrifices were often made to enrich the soil. And those sacrifices involved blood. Remember when I said like way, way back in the day, back in the red tent, Uh, Canaanite women would like take menstrual blood and they would rededicate it to the soil, to uh, Ishtar and Inanna and all of them. Yeah, this is the Celtic version of it where they would like slit the throat of a bull and, you know, make the soil fertile. With the Christian obsession with Jesus' blood and its miraculous healing powers, It's not that hard to sell to the Anglo-Saxons that, you know, Jesus as some sort of springtime deity who died for the land and rose again in the springtime to regenerate the earth. That's actually a pagan Welsh uh, folktale, the Fisher King, you know, his health is tied to the land's health and he died in the winter so that's why there's no crops in the winter but then he rises again from a death cauldron or something like that because his half-brother like sacrifices himself for the fisher king and when the fisher king is healed the land is healed throw jesus in there and a little bit of resurrection powder and boom celtic christian syncretization. One of the problems with syncretizing pagan beliefs with Christian ones is that the Holy Trinity now has to do the work of an entire pantheon's worth of gods and goddesses. Most polytheistic religions had a paternalistic elder god figure, so God the Father fits right in there. If you'll recall from episode 5.2, the concept of the Holy Trinity is adapted from polytheistic Neoplatonism anyway the Holy spirit could cover all the spirits and ghosts and all that other unexplainable stuff in the polytheistic religions. But Jesus as the son of God had to do a lot of heavy lifting to cover everything else. Jesus had to be Apollo. He had to be fucking Helios. He had to be Hermes. He had to be Hades. Well, no, I guess that would be the devil. I mean, he had to be everybody, right? Saturnalia was an ancient Roman festival and holiday in honor of the god Saturn, held on 17 December in the Julian calendar and later expanded with festivities through to December 23rd. The Romans celebrated Saturnalia with a sacrifice at the Temple of Saturn in the Roman Forum and a public banquet for the city's elites. This was followed by private gift-giving, continual partying, and a carnival atmosphere where Romans were encouraged to shed their inhibitions and were allowed to thwart some social norms, usually while wearing a mask so they could feel as though they were ignominious. Gambling was permitted during Saturnalia. The patrician class liked to have an opposite banquet, too, where they dressed up as their slaves and their slaves would sit down at the table dressed as the masters and the masters would serve the slaves and perform for them. Among the plebs... A common custom was the election of a king of Saturnalia who would give orders to people and preside over all the merrymaking. In Roman mythology, Saturn, Saturn was an agricultural deity who was said to have reigned over the world in the golden age when humans enjoyed the spontaneous bounty of the earth without labor and a state of innocence. The ancient Roman historian Justin, Justinus credits Saturn with being a historical king of the pre-Roman inhabitants of Italy, saying... The first inhabitants of Italy were the Aborigines, whose king, Saturnus, is said to have been a man of such extraordinary justice that no one was a slave in his reign or had any private property, but all things were common to all and undivided as one estate for use of everyone in memory of which way of life it has been ordered that at the Saturnalia, slaves should everywhere sit down with their masters at the entertainments, the rank of all being made equal." Did Marx copy off of Saturn? Thus, Saturnalia had deep cultural significance for the Romans, and it was hard to part with. So the Christians made Saturnalia into Carnival and Christmas, the last lap of merrymaking that helped Christians get all the naughtiness out of their systems before Lent. Lent is a solemn religious observance in the Christian liturgical calendar that begins on Ash Wednesday, I'm sorry, yeah, and ends approximately six weeks later, depending on the Christian denomination and local custom. Lent concludes either on the evening of Maundy Thursday or at sundown on Holy Saturday, when the Easter vigil is celebrated. Regardless, Lenten practices are supposed to be properly maintained until the evening of Holy Saturday. In the Eastern churches, whether Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Lutheran, or Eastern Catholic, Lent ends at noon of Holy Saturday. The purpose of Lent is to prepare your soul for Easter through prayer, mortification of the flesh, which just means denying your body food for a prescribed length of time, repentance of sins, almsgiving, simple living, and self-denial. The stations of the cross are observed by some, and others designate a Lenten sacrifice that they will abstain from for 40 days, signifying the 40 days Jesus spent in the desert resisting the temptations of the devil. The last week of Lent is called Holy Week, and it starts on Palm Sunday. According to the New Testament narrative, Jesus was crucified on a Friday, which is strangely called Good Friday, although I'm sure it wasn't a good Friday for him. And allegedly, Jesus spent the entire weekend in hell wrestling with the devil for the keys to the kingdom of God, which is probably some type of allegory from Roman times that I still don't quite understand. Like keys? Where do keys come into all this? I don't know. Why did the devil have keys? Uh, and on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus is said to have rolled away the stone from his tomb and rose up to sit at the right hand of God. And that Sunday is called Easter Sunday. During Lent, certain foods are forbidden. Until 1741, meat and meat by- byproducts such as eggs and dairy products were forbidden for the whole season of Lent. But then Pope Benedict the Fourteenth allowed for the consumption of meat and, uh, what? how do you say this? Lactonesia. Lactonesia dairy products during certain fasting days of lent after the irish potato famine of the 1840s the catholic church granted a hundred year dispensation to the irish so that they didn't have to adhere to the lenten fasting rules and they still use that dispensation like a hundred years ago that it's been passed you guys need to start doing lent like the rest of us Thus, the festivities of Saturnalia were syncretized into the the Christian traditions associated with Christmas, New Year's Eve, and pre-Lenten Carnival. Another pagan tradition that was incorporated into Christmas was the Celtic ritual of oak and mistletoe, mistletoe. According to the Roman historian, Pliny the Elder, in his Natural History, we should not omit to mention the great admiration that the Gauls have for it as well. The Druids, that is what they call their magicians, Hold nothing more sacred than the mistletoe and a tree on which it is growing, provided it is a hard-timbered oak. Mistletoe is rare, and when found, it is gathered with great ceremony, and particularly on the sixth day of the moon. Hailing the moon in a, private, in a native word that means healing all things, they prepare a ritual sacrifice and banquet beneath a tree and bring up two white bulls whose horns are bound for the first time on this occasion. A priest arrayed in white vestments climbs the tree and with a golden sickle cuts down the mistletoe, which is caught in a white cloak. Then finally they kill the victims, the bulls, praying to a god to render his gift propitious on to those on whom he has bestowed it. They believe that mistletoe given in drink will impart fertility to any animal that is barren and that it is an antidote to all poisons. That's interesting because I heard mistletoe was incredibly poisonous. Oak is no longer considered to be the decorative tree of choice for Christmas. That distinction now going to the Douglas fir. But the importance of mistletoe and its apparent powers of virility have been distilled down into the whole stand under the mistletoe and kiss tradition that we now observe today. White bulls everywhere, I suppose, are rejoicing at that. The veneration of saints in the Catholic and Orthodox tradition are the most obvious examples of syncretization. Demetrius of Thessaloniki was a Christian martyr of the early 4th century who was venerated in medieval Greece as a patron saint of agriculture, peasants, and shepherds. Elsewhere in the Orthodox Church, he's venerated as a military patron saint because the city of Thessaloniki had suffered repeated attacks and sieges from the Slavic peoples moving into the Balkans and Demetrius was credited with many miraculous interventions to defend the city. In Greece, Demetrius's veneration was the transference of the Eleusinian mysteries from the pagan cult of Demeter onto Saint Demetrius. They even have a similar name, it just fits, right? The Eleusinian mysteries represented the myth of the abduction of Persephone from her mother Demeter by the king of the underworld, Hades. In a cycle with three phases, the descent, which is the loss, the search and the ascent with the main theme being the ascent of Persephone and the reunion with her mother. When the Greeks were converted, they transferred Demeter's rights and roles to Demetrius. In West Africa, The main ethnic groups that were kidnapped and sold into slavery in the Americas were the Dahomey or Fon people of present-day Benin, the Yoruba of the Oyo Empire in present-day Nigeria, the Akan peoples of present-day Ghana and Ivory Coast, including the Agona, Akwapim, Ashanti, Bono, Fonte, and Wassa, the Iwe people of Togo, Benin, and southwestern Nigeria, The Mbundu people of present-day Angola and the Igbo people of present-day Nigeria. These people brought their religions to the Americas with them. And these are commonly referred to as African traditional religions or ATR. West African Vodun, Vodun means spirit in the language of the Fon and the Iwe. And it was practiced by the Aja, Iwe, and Fon peoples of Benin, Togo, Ghana, and Nigeria and it was distinct from the African religions of the interior. Aside from Islam, which was the state religion of the Yoruba Oyo Empire and the empires of Mali and Songhe, African religions were still mostly localized and centered on ancestor worship, which would have made it incompatible with the all-encompassing Christianity and its hodgepodge of customs that came from all over the world by that point. Yet life, you know, finds a way, and Vodun, is the main source of several African diasporic religions that bear similar names, such as Haitian voodoo, Louisiana voodoo, Cuban voodoo, Dominican voodoo, and Brazilian Vodum. specifically the Candomblé Yeye and Tambor de Mina branches. In Candomblé, there are three main branches or nations, Ketu, Yeye, and Angola. Yeye means stranger in the Yoruba language. And that's what the Yoruba slaves of Brazil considered the Fon and Ewe slaves that arrived after them. Thus, through the practices of ATR, we're able to construct a narrative time frame of slavery in the Americas, which I find really fascinating. Like, you would think like, oh, who came first and which areas, you know, like, what was the progression of slavery? Because it's not one of those things that's, that happened, it didn't happen in Quite a linear fashion, but I mean, there had to be some rhyme or reason to it. And so through the practice of ATR, you're able to understand that the Yoruba were in Brazil and and, and the Dominican and the the Yoruba were in these places first. For reasons that I do not quite know, I should have gotten more into that, but I didn't. And then when they saw Iwe and Fon peoples come in, they called them Yeye. I thought that was cool. Condomle involves the veneration of spirits known as Orixas, who are equated with the Roman Catholic saints, but derive their names and attributes from traditional West African Orisha. The Orixas are regarded as subservient to a transcendent creator deity, Oludamare. Each individual has a, Tutelary Orixa, who has been connected to them since before they were born and who informs their personality. In the initiatory tradition, Condomblé's members usually meet in temples known as terreros, run by priests known as babalorixas, which is similar to the Yoruba babalawo, and priestesses called ialorixas. A central ritual involves pr- practitioners drumming, singing, and dancing to encourage an Orixa to possess one of the members. They believe that through this possessed individual, they can communicate directly with the orixá. Practitioners also give offerings to the orixás, which include fruit and sacrificed animals. They also sacrifice to a range of lesser spirits, including the exus, caboclos, and the spirits of the dead. Divination is used to decipher messages from several forms of... uh, Yeah, decipher messages from the orixás, and a variety of healing rituals are performed as well. The three nations of Kadomle are defined largely by which African language influences their terminology and practices, which, I, again, I think is kind of fascinating from an anthropological standpoint. Ketu uses Yoruba, Yeye uses Iwe, and Angola uses the Bantu languages of the Mbundu and Mbagala peoples of Angola. So it's kind of like... I think personally, it would be if you were really trying to find out, you know, where in Africa you came from, ATR is probably a more, I want to say, reputable guide than would be like those sketchy for-profit DNA things. I don't really want any DNA tests telling me that I'm like 13% not black or whatever. That's the number that I've given myself. I will not go no further than that. But it would be interesting to find out like, oh yeah, your people likely came from here because once they got to the new world, they were part of the Ketu nation, which would mean that they were most likely Yoruba before they became enslaved. So I thought that was quite fascinating. The Katsu Nation is the largest in terms of membership, and it's also called sometimes the Nago Nation, which is a derogatory term that was used by Dahomey people to refer to Yoruba-speaking people, specifically of Oyo heritage, many of whom were sold as slaves to Brazil. The Dahomey and the Yoruba were rival kingdoms in West Africa, and for a while, the Dahomey had the upper hand, capturing and selling many Yoruba to the Portuguese in their slave raids. Over time, the Dahomey kingdom lost that upper hand, and the Oyo Empire became the dominant slave raiders on the West African coast, capturing and selling many Dahomey to the same Portuguese slave traders. Sometimes these rival groups would end up in the same place, on the same plantation, and old wounds weren't always easily bound because of their current shared status as slaves. Like, You didn't just immediately consider, oh, well, we're the same because we're both slaves here in this random country on the other side of the Atlantic now. They were still Yoruba people and Iwe people and Dahomey people. And sometimes they beefed. After the mostly Dahomey slaves in the French colony of Saint-Domingue were able to start the revolt that became the Haitian Revolution, slave traders started becoming more cautious about documenting where they picked up their captives and what ethnic group or nation they belonged to so that communication between slaves would be more difficult. But that didn't stop anything because, I mean, you still made them all learn the same European language, so... Jokes on you, bitch. The Yoruba religion comprises the traditional religious and spiritual concepts and practice of the Yoruba people. It shares some parallels with the Vodun religion practiced by the neighboring Fon and Ewe peoples to the west and to the religion of the Edo people to the east, which is why Condomblé has a Yoruba, is, is, is a Yoruba influenced religion. Yoruba cosmology is described as being very robust and it holds that all human beings possess what is known as ayanmo, which is your destiny or your fate. Every person is expected to eventually become one in spirit with Alutamare, who is also known as Oloron, and the thoughts and actions of each person in Aie, the physical realm, interact with all other living things, including the earth itself. The concept of of the physical realm of Aie is very similar to the Neoplatonic idea of the Demiurge, which is the material world. Every person strives to find their destiny in Oronriri, the spiritual realm of those who do good and beneficial things like the Christian heaven and your Oriinu or spiritual consciousness in the physical realm. It has to grow and develop in order to consummate union with one's Ipanri or Orioron, which is your spiritual self. Iwapele, or well balanced, meditative recitation and sincere veneration is sufficient to strengthen the Ori Inu of most people. Well balanced people are able to make a connection between their Ori and Alorun in the form of an Adora, or prayer for divine support. When you make Adora, which sounds curiously like Dua, or prayer in Islam, but a lot of Europe are Muslim, so I guess that makes sense. The Orisha Eshu Elegbara initiates contact with the spiritual realm on the supplicant's behalf and submits the prayer to Babalu Aye who gives it Ase or the spark of life. Ase is a necessary component for all prayers and Oloran is composed of Ase and as such is considered supreme. Eshu is the Orisha of in charge of enforcing the natural laws and of orderliness Babalu Ayé is the Orisha of healing in all its aspects, of the land, of respect for the elderly, and the protector of health. He is called whenever necessary to prevent infirmity. So you can see how the Yoruba, when first presented with Catholicism, were able to see the veneration of the saints and their invocation when offering prayers to God as being similar to their religion. And they were able to preserve Orisha worship in the new world by incorporating it into Catholicism. According to Professor S.A. Akintoye, the Europa were exquisite statesmen who spread across the globe in an unprecedented fashion during both the transatlantic slave trade and afterward and transported their religions to Argentina, Brazil, Cuba, Colombia, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Trinidad and Tobago, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Uruguay, Venezuela, and other parts of the Americas eventually constituting a core lineage of of African diasporic uh, religions. So, long story short, the Yoruba basically birthed diasporic African style, Igbo too. These include Candomblé as practiced in Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay, Santeria as practiced in uh, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Dominican Republic, Trinidad Orisha, also known as Shango, which is obviously practiced in Trinidad and Tobago. Spiritual Baptists, as practiced in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and Umbanda, which is also practiced in Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay. The Lukumi people of eastern Cuba are the descendants of Yoruba slaves who practiced the Santeria of Cuba. Most ATRs incorporate drumming and call-and-response music, and the Lakumi language is so near to presently spoken Yoruba that they're able to travel throughout Yoruba land and be mostly understood, similar to how a Haitian Creole speaker can converse with a Lu- Louisiana Cori Vini speaker because Cori Vini developed from the influx of Haitian slaves that came to Louisiana in the years preceding and following the Haitian Revolution. West African masquerades like the Yoruba Ikungun um uh, that's a Europe a masquerade for ancestor reverence that was incorporated into pre-Lenten carnival festivities of the French, Spanish, and Portuguese colonies like Trinidad, Haiti, and Brazil. In the Trinidadian Old Mosque, masqueraders had to celebrate according to their social station, and many of the characters portrayed by the slaves were satirical in nature, like Negajad and The Field Hand. Similar to how the ancient Romans would dress in their slaves' clothes and serve them at a feast, the planter class in Trinidad would dress up as field hands during carnival and like run amok in the streets wearing masks. Now pre-emancipation, the slaves weren't permitted to dress like their masters, but after emancipation, Afro-Trinidadians adopted the character as a satirical take on the masters or former masters. The Moko Jumbi is a traditional folk character that was originally brought to Trinidad from West Africa. The word Moko is the name of a god of the Congo people. Moko, whose name means diviner, watches over his village and due to his towering height, he's able to foresee danger and evil. During Carnival, Moko would be represented by men on towering stilts and performed acts that were unexplainable to the human eye. The jumbie or ghost was added by liberated slaves after emancipation because the Moko jumbie was felt to be a protector spirit of the village. The stilt walker plays on stilts 10 to 15 feet high, which are often brightly painted in stripes, and they wear long full skirts or pants, brightly colored satin or velvet jacket, and an elaborate admiral's hat topped by plumes. The Moko jumbie dances to the streets all day, Collecting money from spectators gathered at second-floor windows or on balconies, and dances to the accompaniment of steel drum and triangle or the flute, and soca music to of the passing band. African slaves, though, weren't the only people who syncretized their religions with Christianity. Various East and Southeast Asian uh, relig- Southeast Asian religions have been syncretized with Christianity as well. La Divina Pastora is a church in Siparia, Trinidad and Tobago, that houses the Madonna Negra, or Black Madonna, as she is known to the Catholics who venerate her. To the Hindus, she is a manifestation of the goddess Kali, and they call her Sipari Mai. And to the Shengo, she's a manifestation of the Orisha Urzuli Danto, the main manifestation of the Loa Azul- Urzuli, who's associated with the Black Madonna of Chistawa in Haitian voodoo. That Black Madonna of Chastawa is the patron saint of Poland, and during the Haitian Revolution, Napoleon Bonaparte had hired Polish mercenary soldiers to subdue the revolution and restore the colony to France. The Polish legions were unaccustomed to the climate and topography of Haiti, and losing their morale, most of them defected to the Haitian side of the war, where they were received graciously and taught how to survive in the tropical environment. As a consequence of this action, when the Haitian general Jean-Jacques Dessalines decreed that Haiti would be a all-black republic and ordered the island scourged of all Europeans in 1804, uh, the Poles were left alive and granted citizenship in the newly founded Republic of Haiti. And the descendants of these soldiers are still living on the island today, specifically in the locality of Kazali. The Jesuits had had the most success in establishing cordial relations in Asia. After founding St. Paul's College and Seminary in Goa, St. Francis Xavier went to China in 1552, where he quickly died. Three decades later, in 1582, the Jesuit priest Matteo Ricci established friendly relations in the imperial Chinese court through knowledge sharing, with the Jesuits introducing Western science, mathematics, and astronomy and visual arts to the Chinese imperial court, and carrying on a significant intercultural and philosophical dialogue with Chinese scholars, particularly with representatives of Confucianism. At the time of their peak influence, members of the Jesuit delegation were considered some of the Kangxi Emperor's most valued and trusted advisors, holding prestigious posts in the imperial government. Many Chinese, including former Confucian scholars, adopted Christianity and became priests and members of the Society of Jesus. According to the historian David E. Mongello, in 1844, China had about 240,000 Roman Catholics, but this number continued to grow, and by 1901, the figure had reached 720,000. Many Jesuit priests, both Western-born and Chinese, are buried in the cemetery located in what is now the School of the Beijing Municipal Committee. Now, it's always a given that when you're doing well, your haters will start to plot on your downfall and the always salty Franciscan and Dominican friars had it out for the Jesuits in Asia. The Chinese rites controversy is a rare case of the Christian faith accommodating the Eastern faith instead of the other way around. It was a dispute amongst Roman Catholic missionaries over the religiosity of Confucianism and Chinese rituals during the 17th and 18th centuries. The debate discussed whether Chinese ritual practices of honoring family ancestors and other formal Confucian and Chinese imperial rites qualified as religious rites and were thus incompatible with Catholic belief. The Jesuits argued that these Chinese rites were secular rituals that were compatible with Christianity within certain limits and should thus be tolerated. The Dominicans and Franciscans, however, disagreed and reported the issue to Rome. They claimed that the Jesuits like They had been there about a century longer than everybody else. And, you know, during that time, they felt that the Jesuits went native, I guess. The controversy embroiled leading European universities. The Qing Dynasty's Kangxi emperor, and several popes, including Clement XI and Clement XIV, considered the case. The offices of the Holy See also intervened. Near the end of the 17th century, many Dominicans and Franciscans had shifted their positions to agreement with the Jesuits' opinion, but the Roman Curia disagreed. Pope Clement XI banned the rites in 1704, and in 1742, Pope Benedict XIV reaffirmed the ban and forbade debate. In 1939, after two centuries, the Holy See decided to reassess the issue, probably after the numbers of Chinese Catholics started to plummet. Pope Pius XII issued a decree on 8 December 1939 authorizing Chinese Catholics to observe the ancestral rites and participate in Confucius honoring ceremonies. Score one for the Chinese. The general principle of of sometimes admitting native traditions even into the liturgy of the church, provided that such traditions harmonize with the true and authentic spirit of the liturgy, was eventually proclaimed by the Second Vatican Council of 1962 to 1965. So, in the long run, the pagans won. After nearly a century of religious wars on the European continent, Both the Catholic and Protestant kingdoms of Europe set their sights abroad in search of religious freedom and toleration, and land and wealth and power. The various Christian sects of Europe enabled this process by coming up with justifications for colonization and slavery, imposing their faves on the people of the world with varying levels of success. The enslaved and colonized came up with ingenious ways to preserve their own faith through religious syncretization, but the relationship between the oppressed of the world and the faiths of their oppressors continued to be uneasy and imbalanced. After World War II, the world began a process of decolonization that threatened Christianity's grip on the marginalized, so the church and its defenders sought to make amends in the mid-20th century through liberation theology. Next episode, I will discuss liberation theology and the ways that colonized peoples used Christianity as a means of empowerment and reconciliation in the rapidly changing post-war world. Join me next time for more Musings on History.